So, as you're seated, please open to Genesis chapter 1, and hopefully it's not a surprise to you that we are in Genesis. Whether it is or not, we'll, that's where we'll be, Genesis chapter 1, and let's read verses uh, 1 through 13 together this morning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together He called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. Father, thank you for your act of creation, Lord, the acts that you did here and, and the revelation of what you did. Father, I praise you. We, we thank you together for this word, and Lord, we pray that you would teach us as we study together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what kind of God is your God? What do you know about Him? If somebody were to ask you to write down a list of things that you know about God, His attributes, His characteristics, things that you know about God, how long would that list be? And then if you were asked to explain, how do you know those things about God? Where'd you get that information from? How many of those would be, well, I, my pastor told me this. My, my uh, pastors always say this when they're praying or when they're teaching. Or uh, my Sunday school teacher told me this. I heard another popular radio uh, preacher say this. Or where does it come from? Where does the information that we know about God come from? Would it just be regurgitating what we've heard before? So, how long would the list be, but then how deep would the list be? How, how relevant is it, not just in truth, but in truth to you? How well do you know God? A few years ago, Barna conducted some research and found that the people that can, of the people that can um, regularly attend church, 15% said that their relationship with God was a priority in their life. Only 15%. Other things were bigger to them than God. Well, these verses are where we really begin to understand 
how big God is, the power of God, the authority of God and his word, and much more about God. So let's dive in here. We've spent a couple of weeks leading up to studying uh, many of these days. We're going to, st- to consider the, the first three days of creation now. We're finally going to move past the first two verses, and let's study together the first three days of creation and learn about this big God, this Big is, is a terrible word. <laughs> he, he's the biggest, biggest <laughs> there, There's nothing bigger. And we don't even have words for this God. Let's consider day one in verses one through five. We're going to see that God divides light and darkness. He divides light and darkness. Now, again, we've covered verses one and two, so we're not going to dive into them. We're not going to really include them um, this morning. Just as a refresher, we saw that God began methodically creating, step by step creating everything from nothing, and we couldn't make the shape out of it, and nothing could have inhabited it. It was without form and void, and even if we could have made some kind of moving shape, there was no light for us to see anything, but God the Holy Spirit defined the existence, and he told us that it was there, and he told us he started it. Now, As we said, God did that in that orderly way, that systematic way, so that our finite minds could understand and could learn from him. Really, this orderly creation was a grace from God. It was his grace to do it slowly enough so that we could keep up with what he was doing as he's, he could have just done it instantly, we said, right? He was doing this to teach us, but what do we do so often with what God gives us in his grace? We just reject it. Or, or we just sweep it aside as unimportant or, you know, that's nice, thanks God, and, and it doesn't really affect us much. We do that when we doubt his ability to create in six days. Or we ignore it and say it's just not that important or we take it for granted. But we also take advantage of God's grace in revealing this creation to us when we pound other people over the head with it. When we're not loving when we're not kind as we share this and with the purpose of revealing to us who we are before God so that we can find out who we can become before God in Jesus. That's why we would learn about this. That's why we would tell other people about this. So that we can worship God and so that we can serve him and tell other people about him. So God begins creating in verses one and two, teaching us about himself graciously for our benefit and for his glory. So we come to verse three this morning together. And as I started studying these verses, I was struck at the absolute wonder and the, the, the power, the authority of God's word. God says, let there be light, and there was light. You know, that's amazing. Now, some of you, I, I hear some of you what you're thinking, I can do that. So, some, some of you has, how many of you have an Alexa some type of Alexa device in your home. Alexa, turn the living room lights on. (laughs) And there was light, (laughs) right? I can do that. (laughs) Let's just think about the the differentiation here. (laughs) Let's just think about how different that is. First of all, uh, you need electricity, uh, power that you don't have to make the lights come on, right? Uh, Most electricity in the U.S. is um, driven by a steam turbine. A fuel is burned. It heats a vapor, the water into a vapor. It turns a rotor, powers a turbine, drives a generator, and we get electricity. And not only do you need electricity, you need an internet connection. 
the, the ubiquitous household assistants today require an internet connection for the processing power to transform your voice into something machines can understand and, and electronic devices can understand. The internet had its beginnings in the middle of the 20th century. It wasn't really born in the shape that we know until 1983, and the World Wide Web didn't come along until 1990. The internet is made up of just computers, computers of different types, but they're all very complicated, very complex in their language that they're um, configured with and, and designed and what they're designed to do. It's the computers that are made to do all of these tasks. It's complicated programming languages and instructions that make them work, and we take it for granted today. Do you know there are over five billion people on the internet today, active users on the internet? And this is just for fun. This is in no way related at all. But I found YouTube has only been around since February of 2005. And every minute, 500 hours of video are uploaded. Every minute, 500 hours of video are uploaded. It's just amazing. Okay, so again, (laughs) amazing internet that we have, amazing electricity, the hardware and software involved. I mean, it's just mind-blowing, the complexity of what it takes to have a human voice act to turn lights on in a room. It's a lot of variables. It's a lot of existing infrastructure and power that you don't have and I don't have in our voice. But when God spoke, out of nothing came light. Light is one of the most needful realities of life. And yet we, fully, we don't fully understand light. Did you know that scientists are still being surprised by light as they study it? One writer put it this way, quote, it goes through walls but slows to a standstill in ultra-cold gases. It carries electronic information for radios and TVs but destroys genetic information in cells. It bends around buildings and squeezes through pinholes but ricochets off tiny electrons. It's light. And although we know it primarily as the opposite of darkness, most of light is not visible to our eyes, end quote. See, so it, it exhibits characteristics of waves fluctuating fields, exerting forces on particles, yet it also has characteristics of being a particle that are called photons that act more like objects that ram into other objects. It's a wave, yet it's a particle, and it's just so not totally understood by scientists. It's something so familiar to us, something so needful for us, we don't even fully understand it. But God simply spoke it into existence. His power. It's the most basic, essential prerequisite for dependent life. Dependent life. Well, God is alive. He's real and living and true. He has all life in himself, but he depends on nothing. All other life depends on God and what he gives to us so that we can live, including light. God doesn't need light, but he created it for us. And so all of us who are dependent life forms need light, and he spoke it by, it, it, it's, he provided it by fiat, just divine decree, let there be light, boom, there it is. And what did it, what did it cost him? What did it require of God to do that? You know, we, we kind of reviewed some of the other creation myths that are, that are around, and this God had to die, or uh, that God had to bleed, or that God had to cry, and, and it cost the false gods something to make all of this, but it cost God nothing. Let there be light. No piece of him was missing. It cost him nothing. Nothing was lost and nothing was added. (laughs) 
God had everything he needed. What requires so many resources and so much energy for us, God speaks, and there it is. It really brings home the words of Psalm 33, verses 8 and 9, let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it came to be, he commanded and it stood firm. What an amazing God this is. But what's more, he didn't say, let there be light, and this giant laser zapped the world. He goes, whoops, <laughs> right? It, it wasn't a harmful light. It was a good light. Look at verse 4. It is good. God saw that it was good. So it was, it was immediately exactly what the world needed. Good can mean goodness morally. It can also mean pleasing, but of course, it's pleasing to God. He's making it. He's doing it. But it also, this goodness also is, it has a meaning of beneficial. It's useful. It's, it's fitting and healthy. It's conducive for life. It doesn't destroy life. So immediately, he speaks it into existence, and it's purposeful. It's beneficial. And not only does he do it instantly, he does it on the first try, <laughs> right? First time, let there be light, and there it is. Every perfect gift of light, every perfect gift is from who? A father of lights. James, James 1 tells us, James 1.17, every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of lights, with whom there is no shadow or variation of change. This God remains the same forever, and he's the God, the father of lights. In his perfect wisdom and perfect power, controlled by perfect wisdom, he created this, he never changes, and now we have light. The next two sentences in verse four are necessary and enlightening, if you will. <laughs> some of you laugh, some of you groan, that's okay. God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. Have you ever tried to capture light? Tried to, tried to capture it in your hand or, or tried to control it using your voice without Alexa or Google? You can't. But God did, yeah. There you go, a lightning bug. <laughs> That's a good start. Everywhere that light was supposed to go, everywhere that, that God wanted light to go, that's where it went. Everywhere he didn't want light to go, it didn't go there. What did it mean when it was bright? It was daytime. What did it mean when it wasn't bright anymore? Well, it was nighttime. <laughs> God made that. It was good. It was a benefit. It was helpful for life. It's beneficial and helpful for life to have cycles of work and rest, and, and we work during the day, generally speaking, and we sleep at night. Our, our bodies need a break. They need rest and sleep to recover and be ready for the next day. And nighttime signals the end of the time to work. Daytime signals the beginning of the time to work, and it's God's creative and wise gift to run our lives by. Now, I know that's in general terms. Some of you work night shifts and, and I've been there with you before. I don't know how you survive. I don't know how you do it. I did a night shift from 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. for several months. And um, there are no such thing as zombies except those who work those night shifts. <laughs> That's what I had turned into. But in general, nighttime is for sleeping. Daytime is for working. And that's the way God designed it. Because God's view of the light is good... That's why light becomes the picture for all that is good and for right and true. Light in the scripture is, you have these verses in your notes, John 1, 4, light is life-giving. Light is truth-giving. Life is pleasant and brings gladness in Ecclesiastes. Light is pure in 1 John. 
And darkness comes to symbolize the opposite of all that. So light is what God brings. He speaks it into existence. Immediately it's beneficial. And yet this separation between them is beneficial as well. The, the distinction between them and God's plan is important because we need divisions. We need lines. We need distinctions. We need God to tell us the category so that we can comprehend life. There is no more scary place to be on earth, no more frightening, striking fear into the soul of a person than a teenager's bedroom, <laughs> right? You go into the bedroom and the food is on the bed and the sheets are on the floor and the clothes are on the dresser, but the books are inside the, the drawers and what's going on? It's chaotic. I can't make sense of this because we need the distinctions. We need some order, <laughs> That's how God prepares the world for us to live here, to make sense out of it. He gives us the distinction between light and dark. And throughout God's worth, he's creating order so that we can comprehend this creation that he's given to us. For now, where is this light coming from? You know, the sun hasn't been created yet. He hasn't, he hasn't made the sun yet. The answer is, we don't know. <laughs> We learned that, we have learned that light exists in the universe apart from the sun, apart from stars. There is, there is measurable, um, visible light in the universe that doesn't seem to come from anywhere. The scientists can't find where it comes from. Just, there's a measurable amount of visible light throughout the universe because God made it. God made light to exist in the universe. Can you imagine light without the sun? One day you won't have to. If you believed in Jesus Christ, he's your Lord and your Savior. And when we get to heaven in Revelation 22, God turns out the sun and the moon and the stars and all of creation, but there's still light, the light of God himself and the Lamb who will light up everything. We won't need the sun. Now, some say, well, you know, that means that, well, you know, there's light, but there's no sun. That means day doesn't mean a little 24-hour day here in Genesis 1, because if there's no sun, then the earth can't spin and perform this 24-hour rotation so that we have a literal day. But that's what Moses tells us the day was like. There was evening, there was morning on day one. And it's the same way that the ensuing days after the sun is created, that they'll be described also. So the light must have come from some kind of single fixed place, probably where the sun ended up being created. But this is also helpful for us to understand. The word day here in verse 5, it's used two different ways in the same verse. And it helps us to understand what Moses meant by day. Because some people think, well, this is an indefinite, undetermined uh, amount of time. And day can mean something indefinite, uh, but it's not an entire epoch or <laughs> eon of time, millions of years. Day doesn't have to mean literal day every time it's used. But when it's attached to a number, day one, day two, third day, fourth day, it does mean day. And then it's, when it's described by evening and morning, there's day, but in verse 5, this day also means just the part of the day that is daytime, the light part of the day. There's the light part of the day, and then there's the dark part of the day, and that's a 24-hour day. So in verse 5, when he says it was day, he called the light day, well, Moses is defining for us what he meant by a 24-hour long day when he says in verse 5, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. He defines it for us. 
Now, why does Moses say there was evening and there was morning? Why point that out? Well, see, God had just created light, right? He, he brings light onto the scene. There's never been light in, in the universe before. He's, the universe is, is just being created. And then suddenly, hours later, the, the light begins to dim. It begins to fade. And so you might think, God, where's the light going? What's happening to the light? Has his, has his decree failed? Has he not been able to sustain the light? Except hours later, the light returns. And then his cycle begins, and you see his goodness to, to bring this division of night and day and the, and the light returning and the light going away. And then you begin to rely on God and how he sees all of that through. He's showing the pattern, the reliability of God's creation to continue in his plan of light and dark and light and dark, and it will continue that way until he says, that's enough. Now, one final thought before we move on to day two. God called, or he named the light day in the darkness. He named or called light. Now, we recall that this was written by a a Jewish man to Jewish people, Moses, to Israel, And when they read this, they would have captured the nuanced meaning of God calling something what it is. Because it's not just something to quickly identify. That's not all that name means. To express something, to express the very nature of something, scripturally, you name it. You give a name to it. So God's not just coming up with random names. He's expressing the the order and, and the nature of what it is. And then as he gives names, God is naming it. He's expressing his ownership, his sovereignty over it. He gets to name it as he makes it. And so summarizing, the all-powerful God creates what is essential and beneficial to life in the mysterious wave particle called light. It divides up the day with this light. It provides order, and the continuation of it prepares for what he will do next. And then he claims it as his own, as creator, and he names it. Are you learning about God? Just in let there be light, and there was light? Do you see his character beginning to take form in these verses? And God's not developing his character, but he's showing us his character in these verses. He's, he's good to give us light and to give day and night to us. So he divides the light and the darkness. On day two, verses six through eight, God divides the waters above and the waters below. He's dividing here. He's making divisions, distinctions. Now, the second day is unlike any other day of creation. Any of the other days in creation, because on this day, we don't have something new being created necessarily. And at the end of the day, God does not say, this is good. Now, it doesn't mean it's not. It just means we don't have that pronouncement at the end of this day. Let's take a look at it. Verse 6 begins like verse 3 did, and God said, followed by what he said, and then what happened? So what did he say and what happened in, vo- in, in day two? Well, he made the expanse in the midst of the waters. He separated waters from waters. Everything in our world up to this point, because it's only the second day of this point, <laughs> everything has been just waters. It's been waters above and below and everywhere there's in between. It's just been waters until God spoke and he created the atmosphere, the expanse, the firmament, if you have the King James Version. And he separated the waters above and the waters below. Now, there's a lot of speculation about what this was, whether it looked different from our atmosphere today, whether there was a a water canopy that enveloped the earth, or whether it was essentially the same as it is today. 
But the idea was that God was making a division between the waters in the sky from the waters on the earth, and the water canopy is a potential possibility. It's, it's why it's called a speculation. It, it could provide the answers to many questions, like where did all the water come from when God judged the world with water, and why did people live so long before the flood, and Lord willing, we'll get there um, when, we, when we study those, those chapters, those verses. But there are difficulties with the water canopy. Anyway, it's not important <laughs> at this point that we, that we understand exactly what God did because He didn't tell us what it looked like exactly. But the expanse, even if it was, wasn't something new, uh, the, re- the results were certainly something beneficial, certainly um, something that was good from God. We breathe this air in the atmosphere. We can't breathe water or for that matter, other gases, yet our air is the proper mixture of gases. You know, you cannot breathe pure oxygen for very long without damaging your lungs and even even dying from breathing pure oxygen. So God gives us oxygen, but also other gases in the air. The atmosphere protects us from too much heat from the sun and the dangerous radiation that could harm us. And so even though God doesn't at the end of this day say, this is good, we recognize that it is a very good thing to have this atmosphere. What's strong here? What, what Moses really is pointing our attention to is the four words in English that we have, and it was so. It's an emphatic statement, and it stresses the fixed place of the waters above and the waters below. Never again do the waters come together so much that the atmosphere goes away? Even in the most torrential downpour of rain, there is still atmosphere. You can still breathe because God has created this expanse, this, this difference, this division. Now, verse 14 will let us know that this expanse extends farther than just our atmosphere. It also includes the heavens. But the waters above include for us today what is the water vapor that's made visible in clouds over our heads. Now get a load of this. <laughs> the amount of water <laughs> that's over our heads is, is it's, it's staggering. They estimate that the amount of water vapor continually suspended above our heads in the air is 54 trillion, 460 billion tons of water. That's how much it weighs, the water that's continually hanging over our heads across the planet. Now, water is about 800 times the weight of air. How do you get all that water (laughs) suspended in air when it's 800 times heavier than air? That's what God did when he created the atmosphere. That's how, he, that's how the water cycle begins. That's what we are so blessed to have with the waters above. Is it fair to say there are waters above and waters below? <laughs> that's more than fair. But again, we see the powerful wisdom and the wise power of God to come up with a system like this, a system like the water cycle and the atmosphere, and then to implement it, verse 7 says, and it was so. And again, as God names the expanse, the heavens, he claims ownership and sovereignty over the heavens. All of this is mine that I have created. And then the second day comes to a close. So realize, recognize the goodness of God to every plant, animal, bird, fish, person on earth because he didn't just give the atmosphere to some people, right? I'm only going to give the atmosphere to the kids because... 
they're the ones that are important. <laughs> I'm only going to give the kids to the, uh, the kids. I'm only going to give the atmosphere to the, to the adults because they have to raise the kids. No, God gave it to every single person and every single living thing on this planet. And he did that in his grace, in his wisdom, in his love for us. As we breathe the air, as you take a breath, think of the God who gives you this breath. Think of Psalm 150, verse 6. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Day three. After the first two days of creating the earth, we now move on to day three. And in day three, God divides. It shouldn't be a surprise, right? You've caught on by now. God divides the dry land and seas. But then he adds plants. He begins to add in verses 9 through 13. This day is captivating because it includes the continuing work of God to make distinctions and divisions and to separate, but then he starts adding to his creation. Verse 9 again begins with God speaking, and here's God's plan as he speaks it. Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. So God turns our attention to the waters now under the expanse, the waters on the earth, And he says the waters need to be gathered together. Now, that's his plan. That's what he says, this is what I want to happen. I want the waters to be gathered. I want the dry land to to appear. What does it say? And it was so. Again, that strong emphasis on the immediate and the complete obedience and fulfillment of his word and creation. God speaks, creation obeys. And there's nothing that I can think of to compare what this must have been like. It's all water, and now (laughs) the waters part, the land rises, and there's land now on this planet. But it's God who determines the shape and the size of the land compares to the waters. God determines right from the beginning. There will be land and there will be water. And he uses processes now to maintain that, including the tides. But they're not preventable, right? We we have not been able to completely harness the ocean and keep it at bay. There's a story of a king of England, Denmark, and Norway, King Canute. And he was a powerful king and his subjects said, King Canute, we want to start worshiping you because you're so powerful, you're so good, you must be divine. And King Canute said, no, no, and he couldn't persuade them, so he said, take my throne and put it on the beach. So they took his throne and they put it on the beach, and as the tide started to come in, he took his scepter and he waved it over and said, tides come no further. And then the tides kept coming and got his feet wet and got his throne wet, and then they had to pick his throne up and move him out of the way because I'm not the one you need to worship, King Canute was telling his people I can't even control the waters on the beach. There's only one God who can do that. Now, the question that may come up in your mind is, is this Pangea? Pangea is the name of, uh, one of the names for the the collective mass of land that could have been all together. All the continents that are separate now, it looks like they may be puzzle pieces that kind of fit together. And so, perhaps all of these continents were one giant piece of land that God created. That's possible here as God created the world. The the text doesn't say that that was impossible. The text doesn't say that that's exactly the way it was. But secular, materialistic, naturalists believe that the earth was that way. It, It does appear that the continents fit together very well, but their belief is that it took millions of years to do that because the continents are moving at a a few centimeters apart every year. So if you kept that, that same, 
movement, that same rate of movement, and you calculate backwards as if they were all together, it would take about 250 million years for them to do that. Now, those who believe that this must have happened the way that, that, that God says believe that if they were together, then they would have had to split apart very quickly, very rapidly. And there's no better place to identify that than the catastrophic event of God's judgment on the earth at the flood. But again, Lord willing, we'll get there. We'll talk more about that when we get there. So whether it was one complete landmass or something close to what the continents are today, God caused the land to appear in just the right proportion to the amount of water that's on this planet. Do we realize the water is covered in uh, 71% water, and of that, over 96% of it is ocean, and the oceans continue our life as we know it on this planet. The oceans absorb solar radiation, they release the heat that's needed for the water cycle, they provide most of the water for the rain. If we had less ocean, then we wouldn't have the life on this planet, if at all, not what we know it. But can you, just, can you just imagine trying to boil down what God did here in so few simple words? The waters gather together, the land appears, and there it is. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's an economy of words that's, that's astounding to us, it, the amazing things that God did. But verse 10, God again shows his sovereignty, his power, his ownership in naming the dry land, calling the oceans, the seas, waters. He claims exclusive rights to that. <laughs> this is what I've made. This is why they exist. And then he points again to what's beneficial, to what's healthy, what's conducive to life when he calls it good. See, what was good before was distinguishing between light and darkness. And then we recognize that the distinguishing between the waters above and the waters below, that was good, that was of a benefit, but now it's this distinguishing between land and water, and it's good to have both. It's good, as we saw, to have it in the proportion that's present, and it's all good that God has made on this planet It's all under his control, (laughs) and this is all good. God has made all of this, and and it's, it's getting ready for a reason, for a purpose. Now, he's not finished with creation yet. He's not even finished with this day, but from this point on, God stops naming things. He stops calling things. He's going to delegate that to someone else later on, But even in delegating that privilege, he maintains ultimate power and authority over everything that's here, from light and dark and land and sea, from the heavens to the oceans. And after this, he's not going to stop making distinctions. He's not going to stop dividing and telling us this is what this is and that's what that is. He's not going to stop saying this is what's good, but he won't name anymore. So verse 11, we hear God's voice. We see his plan for what comes next and how it, how it should act. He begins with the dry ground, and he says to the ground, speaking to the ground, to sprout vegetation. Now, if you've lived in Arizona for any length of time, you know that ground doesn't just sprout vegetation, right? <laughs> if you've ever tried to grow anything with the dirt, it doesn't just grow things, does it? No number of accidental elements in the right place with a spark or catalyst will cause plants to spontaneously begin growing and reproducing, but God brings it to pass here. 
What comes out of the ground at creation on the third day? Was it simple algae and mosses that would evolve over time into bigger plants? No, he says, verse 11, vegetation, including plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit, every kind of vegetation, every kind of plant and fruit trees. Now, the words here focus our attention on the plants that are productive and beneficial. Okay, so the the words here uh, are not just the green plants, but the herbs, the edible vegetation. All plants are created, but we notice those that are conducive to life, the trees that bear fruit. God is preparing for life. Now, the other important focus in these verses is on the plant's reproduction. God planted these full-grown trees and plants He planted them there to be consumed, to be used. We'll see later on when we get to animals and human beings that God creates. But the trees have to be able to continue on even as they're being consumed and to reproduce so that they can be consumed more. Now, that's a distinction we'll talk about more later in Genesis 1. But plants are not alive in the same sense that animals and human beings are alive in Genesis 1. Scientifically, we, we, we call plants living organisms. But in, in God's order, there's a distinct and important difference between plant life and animal life and human life and, for that matter, fish. But for now, God's plan is for the plants to provide a benefit and to continue to do so through their reproduction and bearing seed and other techniques so that they re- reproduce, verse 12 says, each according to its kind. It's made emphatic in the Hebrew. This is the norm. This is the pattern. This is how God made plants. They're going to continue to be the plants that he made them to be. Okay, so orange trees will never produce apples, right? This is part of God's plan. This is his declaration of what he wants to happen, right? This is what we're looking at in these verses. What is it that actually happens? Again, at the end of verse 11, and it was so. All of that that was in his mind and all of the production, all of the useful benefits of having plants, it's immediately carried out. The land brings it forth. It sprouts the vegetation because God said for it to do that. And they're edible and they reproduce. Think about the beauty in the plants that give us the food that we need. I mean, he could have created them all one color, right? Just just look at them and anything that's yellow, you get to eat. (laughs) Okay, that's... We have squash, right? I mean, that's, that's about the only yellow. So, but it could have all just been yellow. It could have all been one flavor, like vitamins. It could have all just tasted like vitamins. How great would it be to eat, right? <laughs> Some of you say, well, that's what vegetables are. It just tastes like vitamins or dirt. No. <laughs> there, are, there are varieties of flavors and consistencies and juiciness and color and texture and sweetness in fruit and vegetables. I mean, you think about we eat the leaves of some plants, We eat the fruit of others, the pods of some, the roots of others. We even eat the bark of some plants. There's goodness in God to provide, not just that he provides, but he provides such variety and and so many different colors and textures and flavors. And there's beauty in this provision. And, And all the plants will be given to people and to animals for food. Genesis later in chapter one here will give that. And plants, plants really do scream the, the glory of God. They're going to decorate the temple and the tabernacle when those come along in Exodus and later on. Psalm 1 compares the godly to a healthy tree. And heaven will have at least one tree in Revelation 22. The plants, 
The plants teach us a lot about who God is. The vegetation all around us. And they stay within their kinds. Again, that's brought out to the forefront in the original. They're they're doing exactly what God commanded them to do. Staying in their kinds. And that's important as we move through chapter 1. God's distinctions remain distinctions in chapter 1. What God says, what he does is good. And creation stays within those boundaries that God creates for it. So God sees this as good. So now again, it's not just the distinction between light and dark. It's not just the division of the atmosphere. It's not just dry land and seas. Now it's a distinction between kinds that's good. The plants are good. Full, direct, immediate obedience is good. That's what creation is demonstrating. And it's productivity and fruitfulness that is good as God commands all of this to happen. See, we're seeing the beginnings of God as lawgiver, as distinction maker, as creation controller, as beauty maker. (laughs) That's who this God is. And as, as everything moves along in God's plan, it is all good, beneficial, healthy, good, conducive to life. Verse 13 brings us back again to God's plan. Evening and morning, the third day, his light continues. The distinction continues. The cycle continues. God's plan is here in place. The world is now set in place as having form. Remember when it was originally created, it was without form and void. It's still void. There's nothing inhabiting the earth right now. No life that's inhabiting it apart from plants. But it's now no longer without form. It's ready for the life that God is going to create. We have light to be able to see. We have air to be able to breathe. We have land to live on. We have plants to eat. And it's all part of God's goodness and His beauty and his provision, and already we're struck with the care of God, the kindness of God, the beauty and the goodness of God to orchestrate all of this for what we need. This is who God is, and this is who God is teaching us that he is in his creation. This is all plainly see in God's creation. As we look around us today, much of what God did was at this time is still present. Much of the beauty and the color and the smells and the flavors are still there. The goodness of God is still very present and real in creation. There are now, however, weeds. There are now thorns. There are plants that are poisonous, plants that are not of benefit, plants even that consume bugs and small animals, right? We take for granted much of what he's made, but there is still the goodness of God around us. We close our windows and doors and shield ourselves from the light that he's made because now too much of it's harmful. We replace the darkness of night and the benefit of that cycle with artificial light so we can keep doing what we want to do. (laughs) In some places, we've nearly poisoned the air to make it difficult for people to breathe. And we work hard to create our own boundaries of water and land because sin has come in and just challenged all of God's distinctions. Every division that God set up for our good, for our benefit, sin challenges, pushes, tries to break through. But the beauty of God, his goodness, his power, his wisdom shines through it. So rather than replace the God of creation with creation itself, we worship him, we submit to him, we serve him. So our application, what do, we, what do we take from here? What are we going to do with these verses and, and learn from these? Are there problems that you're facing right now that just seem too big to overcome? 
Do you, have, do you have little issues that just seem to blow up into giant issues, bigger than they should be, everyday things that come up? Do you have worries and stresses? You know, I mean, the, the way the world's going, the way the country is going, the way our government's going, the way that my kids are going, <laughs> the way that I'm going, <laughs> what am I doing? What am I not? How come I can't get control of even myself? But what can this God not handle? If you trust in him, what problem could possibly compare with this God? Do you get nervous about sharing the gospel with people? Do you struggle with temptation? I'm not sure how I can overcome it. You can't, but God can, right? One of the ways that we can tell how we're doing with this is to look at our prayer life. How much am I depending on God by praying to him? Well, if it's not much, it's probably because I don't think much of God. I don't think he's very big. I don't, I don't understand how big or how good he is, how much he cares, how much he hears. So our application, what goes in that blank, could be the word increase, increase your view of God. It could be expand. It could be magnify. It could be explode. <laughs> explode your view of God. Don't worry. You can't imagine more of God than, than he is. He, he's bigger than we can imagine or think He's bigger, better, wiser <laughs> than we can ever understand. Think about what we're learning about God. Make, make a list of his attributes, right? Think of all of the things that you know about God. Which one of those attributes are you forgetting when you're stressed, when you're worried, when you're anxious? Which one of those do you need to remind yourself about constantly? These attributes that we're learning about God, whether we're in difficult situations, whether we're nervous about sharing the gospel, whether we're tempted with sin, when we look at our lives and we don't see much prayer, get a bigger view of God. Get a better understanding of who this God is. Increase your view, expand your view, because that leads to trusting Him. That leads to worshiping Him, resting in Him, having peace in Him, having hope for now and the future. You need a big God. And he is the biggest. <laughs> there is no other God and there is no bigger God because he is the powerful and sovereign big good God. When our problems seem big, it's because God seems small. When God is bigger than our problems, our problems don't seem quite so big. We can pray to him, we can rest in him and trust in him. So what kind of God is your God? This God is the one who created everything, he owns everything, he's done it for benefit, he's done it for good. That's the God that we serve. That's the God that we worship. Father, we praise you that you are that God, that you are the all-powerful gods. Our words are so weak for who you are. God, our, our understanding is so limited of your goodness, your infinite grace to us. Father, we praise you. Father, we do it imperfectly. We, we don't do it often enough. Father, we don't worship you in spirit and truth, as you've said. We, we, we worship you half-heartedly when we do. God, we forget about who you are. We forget about the things that you've done, how you've been so kind to us, so good to us. You've provided for us so many things in so many ways. Father, we take time right now, Father, to worship you, to, to ascribe to you worth, 
You are worth everything. You're worth more than everything. God, if we owned everything and tried to give it to you, Lord, that wouldn't be enough. We praise you for your creation. We praise you for who you are. Father, I pray that as we live these lives that you've given us to live, God, with however much time you've given us, Father, I pray that every minute of this time would be used by you, God, that that we would operate in the distinctions that you give us. Father, that we would do what's good in your sight. Father, we know we can't do that. We've tried so many times in our own power to do what's good before you, and God, we find that we only mess up, we fail, we forget. But God, thank you for your grace and your mercy in Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the picture of the Lord's Supper that we did this morning. Father, to remember the work of Christ on our behalf. Father, thank you. Thank you. God, we pray that we would live in the light of your creation, the light of what you have given to us, the light of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Father, that we would live our lives in your light for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.